Welcome back to the Process Podcast. Katie and I are in uh, weird moods, I feel. So there's no telling where this is going to go. That's probably a good thing for your listening enjoyment. Or it could be a catastrophe. We'll see what happens. Um, We are going to get into some of our wins and losses like we usually do. Uh, And then we have a question later from Dahlia, one of our members, about creativity the perils of being a creative, which I think also extends not just to the realms that people normally think of creativity, but also in terms of business and how we all are a little more, I think we're all tasked with being creative more than was true when you worked at the Carlsberg plant in the 1800s. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what we, when I was in Copenhagen with my family, we took, we toured the Carlsberg brewery and they talked about how, I mean, it was a true factory, right? And they would give each worker like two liters of beer to start the day, to drink during the day. <laughs> and you don't think anything creative was going on? <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of creative <laughs> conversations were being had. But I think for the most part, it was like just dudes working at a factory. Yeah. You know, so like you're not encouraged to be creative. Whereas whereas now a lot of us have to be creative in our jobs and that is taxing and, and I think that's a good question that we'll dive into I do later. Too. And just the notion of the expectation of creativity mm. and what that does to our actual ability to be creative. Right. Because yeah, you could, it's, it's hard to, it can be mystifying to learn how to turn that spigot on and off. Yes. But you know how. <laughs> you can share <laughs> but we that. we know how, and we're going to give you the answers later. First though, what, uh, do you have a win or a loss from the last couple of weeks, Katie? <laughs> You're like so many I've only been complaining losses. to you about my loss for the last 20 minutes, but I'm not going to um, make everyone else suffer. I'm going to talk about a win. Okay. Uh, my win is I dedicated a lot of time to meal planning this week, which has consistently been on my in my loss column, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I did so with just a completely different lens. So A, I knew this was going to take a lot of time. And instead of being uh, resentful of that, or begrudging. I embraced that. I made it a really cool space and afternoon and music. And yes, this is going to take some time. And then... Back up, back up, back up. So you said an afternoon with music. Take me through that. Okay. I'm going to take you through it because it was a Sunday. And what usually happens for me is that I know in my head on Sunday afternoons, I need to meal plan for the week or it's not going to get done. And I'm resentful about that because there's other things I want to be doing. I don't want to dedicate my time to this. It's hard. It's not easy for me. And it feels like a chore. And so I typically don't do it. And then we scramble and eat reactively through the week, which is (laughs) judging by my entire family's current (laughs) weight. And just general health and energy and sluggishness has not been working well. And so I just told myself this week, it's always on my to-do list, but I said, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make it um, less resentful. I'm going to make Make it fun. I scheduled it on the calendar, as geeky as that is, and I did it outside. I had my music going, and I and I just basically said, "This is going to take this amount of time, and I'm not going to be upset about it." Mm. And so that helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and then decided to go through the week of it and the cooking and the prep of it in a really mindful way. So really digging on 
the fresh fruits and vegetables that allegedly you're supposed to be eating. <laughs> we have not been doing a great job. But honestly, like, where where did this food come from? How lucky are we to be able to eat this so freshly and and just mindfully tasting a lot of this and mm. trying some new recipes and not having it be this is a means to an end, but this is really part of what's going to make us all feel better, maybe, hopefully. Yeah. Did, well, so yeah, what was the evaluation. Yes, I think it's been going great. And so then you have that prep so it doesn't continue to be a huge time suck for me throughout the week, which has been great. And it's really been fun. Like I've tried some foods I wouldn't have doing some anti-inflammatory stuff. And so I've, and and what I've been helping my kids be more mindful of is, yeah, we feel that instantaneous two minutes of great when we eat some ice cream or sugar or whatever we're not supposed to be eating. But then physically, not about the oh, I feel guilty about it because I'm a true believer that if you need that, you need that. And so eat it and enjoy it. But that sense of physically, I don't feel well. And what specifically am I feeling? Is it a stomach cramp? Is it sluggishness? Is it exhaustion? Is it mood? Mm-hmm. And so we all keep kind of checking in. There's much to their <laughs> chagrin. How you that feeling? you keep checking in? Yes, both yeah. ways. Mm. We, we, we had those vegetables. How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. What makes this sustainable? Would I you don't say? know. Okay. <laughs> I knew that was going to be your question. Give me my win. My I'm moment not, win. No, what, it's a lot of I'm effort. Like, but I was, I'm like, yeah, that's it. I'm giving, I'm definitely granting you the win. I'm just, I just mean like, I think for the, for the listeners, uh, edification, right? Benefit. Because it always sounds like. Well, yeah, it'd be great if I actually did that. But how do you how do we make these things stick? Yeah, right? so you what tell is your, me. Well, I don't know. What are you planning on doing <laughs> this Sunday? Like, is it is it happening again? Is it? I think the hope always is the more you can do it, the less effortful it feels. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that will happen. It doesn't seem to. It does mm. tend to be effortful. Or if I let it go, or if I don't have that significant amount of time to dedicate to it. But part of it is just I think the the acknowledgement that it takes time. It takes time for me. Because things right. aren't intuitive. It's not easy yet. Hopefully that will get better down the road. But I think right now it's just this is a commitment. This is a time commitment mm-hmm. that I'm not going to begrudge. But it's important. And I'm yeah. going to look back at the bigger picture and the whys and the reward of how I felt, how I've slept, making those connections. Is there um- – are you getting enough feedback that's positive from your family <laughs> that <laughs> helps or no? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I, no, Short that's a no. lost cause. No. Okay. <laughs> Cause I mean, I think like that's, w- that's where these things uh, start to uh, take hold, right? It, it's the truck that's spinning its wheels in the snow until it finally catches some pavement, right? Mm-hmm. Is and that pavement is somebody, somebody saying it, or you asking somebody to to remind you, right? Like, hey, could you just tell me that this is good? Right, just <laughs> right? tell me. I mean, my my dad used to make sure that we said thank you to our mom for cooking. And so I, I would imagine that even though that was forced, my mother was aware that she was dealing with like a, whatever, 14 year old, 12 year old, 10 year old boy. So like, you're not going to get the most positive feedback. So even if it's that little bit of training that happens from, you know, a partner that says, Hey, could you, uh, 
at least notice that your mom made this casserole? I'm going to, I'm going to wholly disagree here. I think the solution is the removal of that, uh, that expectation for external Mm. reinforcements. If it comes great, but it has to come from within. Well, I, a true, but empowerment means I am not going to wait around or hope or expect or, but I think in the short term, when it comes to this gutting through, that's what, what I, I'm talking to people about all the time is like when you're trying to change behavior, it's going to be, it's going to feel bad. So therefore you have to load up as many external resources as possible. And then it becomes inherently rewarding. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I just don't know that <laughs> children and oftentimes busy husbands or partners can be counted on mm-hmm. as that consistent, genuine, really intrinsically right. rewarding right. reinforcement. But, but what if you call your sister and say like, hey, could you tell me good job? Yeah, <laughs> I could. And I am a big believer in, hey, I just need to hear this. Mm-hmm. I need you to say this to me so I'll feel better. Right. Um, but I think for this, it's for me, it's so much more sustaining if I can reframe how I'm looking at it and make it less about are these people really recognizing that and feeling better about it and not complaining about how awful everything tastes or just telling me, thank you. We know we should be eating this way. This is great, mom. So I think it's a mix. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll check in in two weeks. That'll be our plan. All right. You tell me about your win or loss. I went to get a massage, first professional massage in like two and a half years or something. Wow. And... I was not aware that the masseuse was also masseuse or masseuse. Which one's woman? Okay. I don't know. There's a gender difference in that word, but whatever. Um, I didn't know that she was, she's also something of a healer, which is a vague term, of course. And there was a bit of spaciness to the event, the 90 minute massage slash there was some sage burning and some liniments what what do you mean (laughs) i don't understand like i was getting a massage from this person but she was also like doing some sage burning over me while i was getting the massage you know like when they they do the smoke the sage smoke and stuff so there was a a sort of spiritual element so she lighting sage on fire you know that's like a cleansing thing i I guess i did not you know know. you might do in in kind of a hippy dippy world that it there's just a like i've been to certain ceremonies where they're like okay so now to cleanse the situation or circumstance we're going to burn some sage and the the sage smoke is like kind of cleansing in its way okay there was that there was the chinese liniment uh there was some uh emotional talk as we were as she was doing the massage like you know i'm picking up something as i'm working on your ankle and the win is that at first i was extremely skeptical of this whole situation because I am who I am, but I've also been exposed to so many medical types in my life that I tend to be especially skeptical after 
because of like well, the lack of empirical validation for things, or yeah, because a lot of people just being physically mistreated, right? Like, was oh, it good that, that yes. I was put on oxycontin when I was in college for a stress fracture? Got it. So you're sort of no, it distressed was with the medical community. <laughs> was yes. it good that they put me on Vioxx, which later turned out to give people heart attacks? No, yes. it was not when I was 19. Right. So. Uh, whatever I'm, I tend to be a little mm, possessive about my body because <laughs> it was also my vehicle to sure my you know job for a long sure. Time. Anyway, the win was that um, I came out of there disoriented. It was weird. Like she had done a lot of good. Mm-hmm. She was like, "You look different. Like the way you're standing here is more straight up and down." Yeah. Um, we were able to dive into some very long standing traumas to my various body parts. Yeah. Uh, and the next day I woke up completely depressed and was like, what has just happened to me? But I think it was because I had worked through a lot of these like past traumas where in my case, trauma usually means a physical thing that happened to me. And it may have been a very long time ago. But by midday, Correct. but even those physical <clears throat> things for all of us, but I think in particular you and what it meant for your livelihood, mm-hmm. uh, really emotional, you can't separate the emotional experience of that trauma as right. well as the physical trauma. And we know we store our emotions physically as we, well. We do. But, I mean, you and I do, but I don't know that people are as aware of that. They're stored, but yeah. their awareness of that storage may not be. You're, yeah, and you're my exactly awareness right. was very low for a really long time because I would just um, move on to the next thing. I would sure. just pack on like, okay, so now it's on to the next team and yeah, you're hurt, but you're 24, you're strong enough to get through it. Anyway, I guess what the real win was that by the middle of the next day, I was feeling almost elated in a weird way. Like I didn't, I, and I think what was, what I liked about it was that I don't know what happened exactly. I mean, there was the massage and there was some talking through of this stuff, but it's similar to like our work with our friend, Brad, who is a PT and a dry needler. Sometimes you're not really sure. You mean Dexter? <laughs> right. Dexter, the <laughs> dry of his, needler. His tools of torture. So, I, I think I, I was just, I was glad that I was open to the experience, even though, and I think that's, and that's so much what's, what's valuable here is that it. it's okay. I think to be skeptical because it's just the way of it, right? Like if I go into a room and, and she's talking about her Peruvian teacher and she's got a Puma on the wall cause his name's Puma, my bullshitometer goes way off the charts. Right. And I think that's okay. And then figuring out the middle ground of, of some level of like, now I'll try this out. Right? Sure. Yeah. I and mean, for each of us individually, what that means, but I think in general, the more open we are, the more mm-hmm. curious we can be and understanding where skepticism comes in and what it, that's serving yeah. is this bringing up some trigger of mm-hmm. <laughs> being taken advantage of or yeah, past bullshit, et cetera. Yeah. It's the, I, I like I, that. I guess that's the, it does. I think, especially when you make your living based on your body, you realize there are no shortcuts. And so sometimes you also start to think like, well, if this were good, wouldn't I have already known about it? Sure. And which is which is kind of a limiting belief, but it's also just, I think, a natural progression because you are exposed to a lot of charlatans in that world. Sure. 
But it also really highlights to me, again, where I always go back to such a broken record, but your your perception, your belief of mm-hmm. what that experience was or was not absolutely impacts how you ended up experiencing it emotionally mm-hmm. in the next day. So if you went in there and you held on to the skeps and this bullshit, I'm going to find all these reasons why likely would not have had that same experience the next day. You may have felt the same things physiologically, but it would not have had the same meaning. Yeah. And I, I do think that there's value in thinking about it from her perspective mm-hmm. of if she just said, I'm a healer, come in here and sit for a while, I'd be like, no chance. But because there was the sugar of the massage, which mm-hmm. I know I love, right? <laughs> then <laughs> it kind of eases you into being more willing to maybe open up to some of this stuff, which I think is, it's also interesting just from a, sort of sacred rites or ritual perspective, the reason we do some of the things we do is because we have to kind of load it up with this will feel good in the short term, but over the long term, you also get this other benefit. Right. Right. And yes. we are, we've gotten so digital in a way about the things that we do. So as an example, when you were talking about the food we eat, Contrary to some popular belief, we don't actually know why certain things are exactly good for us. We like to think that we could parse out, well, you need this much protein and you need these vitamins. But in reality, you kind of need the whole food. And then our body's like, ah, I'm going to take these nutrients from this whole food. But we like to think that we could science it out into you need this much protein and this much fat. And I think we that like a- to control applies to these kinds of things where we would think, well, I should be able to just take a pill and then ice this part of my body. And, and that's how I thought for a long time, mm-hmm. too. Um, and I, I do think that there's that just this value of committing to these kind of ritualistic sure. events. Right. Because, again, you could have had the same exact depression inhalation the next day. But had you not been in this open frame mm-hmm. of mind, it it would not have even been attributed to what right. to yeah, what that was. Just... It was something I ate or something different. And mm-hmm. it just brings this general openness to, I think, connecting things that we wouldn't have done otherwise. And and why not? And why not? Yeah. Do you have a loss that you would like to uh, share? Let's go with your loss. <laughs> I've talked too much already. <laughs> I really want to hear about your loss. I'm looking at the notes. Oh. Because I um... think it's something that Oh, am I reading this correctly? Yeah, Sticking so. up so. for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So my loss was I, um, there's a, I think there's a personality trait that's like agreeableness or something. Right. And I think that I'm often too agreeable. Um, and I tend to think that other people are right, especially in stressful situations. Mm, uh, interesting. Yes. Where I will kind of just defer to diffuse a situation, especially in person. I, I think like, not that any, this is very navel gazely. It's not like people are paying attention to my whole career, but in my writing, I probably come across as somewhat disagreeable or contrarian because in writing, I tend to go to a place of trying to kind of push people's buttons. But in person, I'm generally very like, let's make sure everybody's okay. Unless it's a, really fun argument that I've started. <laughs> You've started. So anyway, so I, um, this week had a, like we're hiring people. We're still building out the space. We're still figuring we, for the process online, we expanded our hours by a bunch. Um, and so that, that all takes a lot of chutzpah for lack of a better word. Like just like 
cheerleading and kind of standing up for, I think this is going to work and let's go guys and let's do this. And so one of the things that happened this week was that we had, I had basically gotten to the finish line with hiring this girl who I thought was going to be really great. And then she didn't show up for our like onboard onboarding meeting. Oh no. Just like didn't come. Ghosted you. So I had, I checked my email and she, it turns out she had emailed me like 30 minutes before to say, Hey, I'm donating plasma and it's going long. Can we push our meeting by an hour? And I'm like, what? So every inch of me was screaming red flag, red flag. Like this is not going to end well. Right. But I was so deferential in the moment that like, I was like, well, maybe did I screw up? Did I not make this clear? Like all of those kinds of things. That instinct and the ref- the the reflexive response was mm-hmm. to was doubt, to, question. Yeah, to assume that that other person was more right Self. than I was. Yeah. So I, when we got on the phone, I was, I mean, I think this is good in some ways. And then I was like, all right, I need you to take the night and think about whether you're serious about this and then send me tomorrow sometimes when you could meet. And also this is, not okay this early in this like relationship. Right. Um, and so you were able to say that I was able to say that, but it felt really uncomfortable. It was like a, it was, it felt like I was in a foreign land in a lot of ways. And so I think the, and the discomfort being again, I'm not really sure mm-hmm. that I have that the, I'm, that my, that my the right feelings way. are correct. Okay. Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, my feelings were correct mm-hmm. in the end. Um, but my, I think I tend to not trust my feelings in the short term because I don't want to fly off the handle and wreck something, right? There's that fear that I will get out of control and like ruin something. Mm-hmm. And so then that can lead to me not standing up for myself and at this point, you know, I'm 44 years old. I've traveled a lot. I have a pretty good meter for like right and wrong and if yes. I'm being treated right or not. Like it's not like I'm a psychopath. So it's it's tricky because I just go through that a lot where – especially when I get tired, especially when this the context of running a business that is still figuring itself out where sure. there's a lot of kind of being out. It, it feels like you're extended yes. a lot, just like I'm out here waving. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so it, it, you feel fragile, you feel sort of unsupported, vulnerable. Right. Yes. And so then that, that trigger comes in, I think even more aggressively of like, we'll just mollify, just make it. Okay. Right. And I think I'm asking you all these quotes. I'm not really asking you, but I'm (laughs) letting you delve into this because it's something that's so relatable to all of us. And again, even logically, when we know this makes sense, I can go back through and I've found the evidence that what I'm thinking about the situation or feeling that gut feeling is okay. It's that reflexive what if I'm wrong or what if I overreact or what if I've irreparably act in a way that I can't take back or that's going to have these awful consequences. And it's just slowing that down to be aware of that, number one, to be able to say, what in the world could I, would I ever fly off the handle in that way? What Mm -hmm. could ever be so irreparable that can't be taken back? Very few of us do that. The harm is when we act in a way that we aren't listening to ourselves and are therefore inauthentic, that we then build up the resentment and often do 
inevitably fly off the handle or act in a way that right. yeah, is that's disproportionate the, the to the issue is situation. You, yeah, if you hide it, if you tamp it down, then it becomes this eruption at some point. And the resentment thing that you raised is an important one of like you – I think resentment is a, a reservoir in a lot of ways. Like it, it's this you, – you keep adding – Totally. Water to this dam that's going to break at some point, right? Yes. Um, and so I think that's where I, one of the things that has always helped me with that is writing, right? Like being able to make sense of things that I'm feeling where I'm like, am I fucked up here? Like, it is, mm-hmm. is this a, a spot where I'm screwed up? I had a, an experience speaking of writing. I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast, but a friend very graciously actually asked me for some advice with his personal life, somebody that I knew mostly in a, in a professional context. And he's like, nobody else around me can advise me on this because they're too close to it. So could you talk me through it? And so I, it was actually a kind of a romantic thing that he was asking for advice with. Uh, we talked it through and then I was, I said to him, I think you should write about this. I think you should write this story down. And I checked in with him the next day and he said, that was so effective, but terrifying because I couldn't lie to myself. Can't lie. Yes. It's, it's so interesting, right? Like there's yes. something about putting it on the page where you, you just cannot tell untruths. Yes. I, I use that a lot in my work. There's mm. so many important things about writing, particularly about emotional experiences because A, it captures these nebulous beliefs. For example, if I say something now, that will be judged or I will act in a way that's irreparable. Mm-hmm. That flies around up in our brain uh, uncontrollably, exerting a lot of power, and we're not even really aware of specifically what that is. When we write that down, we can see, oh my gosh, that's actually really ridiculous if I think about it and look at it. Mm -hmm. Similarly with emotional experiences, what is this feeling? And it's that transfer of ambiguity, but ambiguity that holds so much power into a tangible item that we can really look at capture. Mm. And as you said, go through in in a way that is slower, in a way that really forces us to look at in an honest way what's mm-hmm. what's going on. I mean, particularly if we can do it without thinking of the audience or thinking that somebody will ever read this it's a it's it's one of the few chances we can be really genuine and honest and authentic with ourselves but not in a way that we we can so quickly explain it away in our brains or move on to the next thing our egos are really good at convincing ourselves it's not a big deal or we don't really think that and then boom it's gone but it's still Mm -hmm. influencing so much of what we think feel and do yeah yeah it's uh i think you you mentioned that idea of not writing for an audience. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard for people and and myself included, especially if you are often creating content for the outside world. And that could just mean writing Instagram captions. Sure. It becomes difficult to write something authentic. That's not filtered for an audience. Yes. Right. And I think that's what can be really freeing for people is getting to that point of like, I don't care if anybody ever sees this, I'm just going to, put it on the page for myself. Absolutely. And when you think of in a non-writing environment, how much of our lives, almost all of it, we are presenting ourselves in that way in the world Mm -hmm. with that automatic thought always of how am I being perceived? How am I being judged? How will this go come across? How will this go? How Mm -hmm. will this turn out? How will this go? So it really is a part of our 
brain that needs to be more balanced. Mm-hmm. That internal conversation that's an honest, genuine, authentic conversation because of the fact we don't have to interact directly with someone. We don't have to think about how this is going to be taken or not taken or understood or mm-hmm. come across. Yeah. So the loss, you, you, but well, you were the, able to stick up for yourself. I was. It was just, I think the, um, it took a toll, right? Like the, these, uh, each time that I need to kind of toot my own horn publicly as far as like, you know, I'm out doing like I was, I've been working with these businesses and, and that's a lot because you're dealing with 20 people at a time and you, and you have to maintain a level of confidence in what you're talking about while also maintaining confidence with the employees and, sure. and members and all of this of like, this is going to work this. So I guess what I'm leading up to is the realization that there, there are just times in your life when you then have to seek your den, right? Like go back to the cave and just recharge. So when those things take a lot out of me, it's leveling back down to close friends, family, those kinds of things. And realizing that what, if I'm doing that in my business life, I may not have the capacity to do as much of that in my personal life. And so reset back to kind of a, a little bit of a hibernation mode Sure. to, in order to build up the reserves to, go out and stick up for myself. Yes, that makes sense. And the analysis that when I stick up for myself, even though it feels uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. it feels like a lot of effort, how much better do I feel or how much better does that feel than being disingenuous or not having done that or in some way not? I think we we have to force ourselves to go there. Mm -hmm. This feels uncomfortable, but how much added suffering and discomfort Mm -hmm. do I feel and resentment and how does that impact how I go about my day, how I interact with these people, how I feel about myself and putting that sense of discomfort into, into perspective. Yeah. And I think that's a good point because what can happen is you withdraw. Uh, Absolutely. And then you're not, I, I think each week or two weeks or month, whatever, if we're not for me, it is one of the most uncomfortable things that I can do is to disappoint someone, right? Or to feel like I have disappointed, even when that person is a whack job. And I'm like, why was I worried about that person's judgment? But it's just baked in. Right. So knowing that like, you just, you do have to lift that weight. Right. And then once again, the disappointment that I fear, if I actually slow down and make this a tangible fear that I'm looking at and investigating the disappointment that I fear somebody else will have in me. If I say this mm-hmm. doesn't even come close to measuring up to the disappointment I have for myself. If I do not right. and taking it that extra step of analysis, mm-hmm. what's your loss? <laughs> My loss is that I cannot come up with a loss, even though there's so there's, many. There, it was all wins at the level. No, it was not household. all wins. I just can't narrow down my losses. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I really want to get to this question too, but I, I just think in general, we were talking a little bit about parenting before I came on. My, my loss is always parenting connected, mm. and just sort of the constant questioning. I think of. Am I inserting myself too much? How much do I back off and let my children kind of make some mistakes? You're going to make me get specific here, I know. But uh, it's 
the issue of when I question so much, whether I'm right or wrong or whether what I'm doing is harmful or not harmful, but not helpful or not. It's the questioning that impacts how I show up with them. Mm. And I think that's what gets me even more upset. So instead of just, Hey, I think you shouldn't do this. And then, Oh my gosh, you probably should have. This is so vague and going nowhere. I apologize, (laughs) but they pick up on that self doubt and they pick up on that confusion. And then I'm carrying that around with me. Mm Mm-hmm. When sometimes it's just like, I don't know how to handle this well, and that's okay. Do you think your uh, doubt and confusion comes um, mostly from an internal meter or from an, from external sources of like, this is what other people are doing and, and therefore it feels weird because I'm different or? I think it comes from there's just never any really good answers there or any indicators that, oh, this was a successor or wasn't. Mm -hmm. And also that constant fear that we all go through of just awfulizing how the future is going to look if, if we don't intervene or if we take our foot off the brake, it's hard to definitively say that was the right decision at any point of time, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I guess is, sort of similar to what I'm talking about in a way, right? Like you're like, well, how do I kind of stand up for what I believe knowing that it's, there's not going to be it's an outcome, right, right, yeah. right? It's just the, definitive to, outcome of definitive way I can measure. It's not like a job where, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I didn't make my numbers. Oh yeah. That didn't go over well. And so you're, and maybe are you kind of saying that your loss is more your response to this and less about the actual, it is. It's the acceptance that this is a piece of it and part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like with the cooking. If I can just accept that I'm never going to feel definitively great mm-hmm. about anything I'm doing as a parent, that is showing up more authentically with them. Do you have other parents that you talk about this kind of thing with? Kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like yes. your confusion. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, I think. Um, parenting more than anything else really distills for you the kind of person you are and what's important to you. Mm -hmm. And if I can't find people who aren't willing to complain or to worry or to talk about all of this stuff that we're constantly messing up about, then I just, you just don't have any time for that anymore. So yeah, I have a great group of people who are like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. it's almost a competition of how did we screw up today? (laughs) We screwed up worse. Which I (laughs) love. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I think that's, I don't, this is one of those questions that's basically unanswerable, but like, are people more or less able or willing to admit to their failings now than ever before. I don't know. Cause there's a, there's an interesting commodity commoditization online of being quote vulnerable, but it seems a little false. Sometimes it's like a, a level of vulnerability that is safe. Whereas when you're, uh, truly connected to someone in a vulnerable way there's a there's a different thing happening there and that's that does seem more rare all the time but i don't know if that's that's just my perspective or not i don't know i just know that that's that's the secret for all of us when Mm -hmm. we can understand that authenticity and accepting weaknesses and vulnerability Mm -hmm. in terms of what we're not doing well it's just the freedom that sets us all what i'm going to posit is that probably people are 
in person the same amount of willing to admit to their faults as ever, but we are surrounded by so much fake vulnerability that that colors our perspective of vulnerability. Possibly. Yeah. Because I don't know if it were 300 years ago, you wouldn't have people on <laughs> Instagram trying to show how vulnerable they are, right? Like the yep. the model who's like, look at how bloated I am today. You should be body positive. And you're like, well, that's not real vulnerability. <laughs> you took vulnerability. 50 pictures <laughs> to get the right level of I still look good when I'm bloated, right? That's not... <laughs> Totally. And I think that's something that I like, I think about a lot. Like, how can I? I, I don't know if if it's if how it's can I not look bloated in my bikini? <laughs> right. If it's performative, which social media and and sort of public persona stuff is, can it ever really be vulnerable, or is it always kind of guarded? I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I think that's what. And I don't so care. Is, At the end of the like, I don't care well, if but, somebody's not coming. Right. Yeah, but I think that's what's. I I wonder in, in the format that we're. Con- currently participating in i think that's one of the things people like about podcasting in general is there's something about it that tends to bring up a sense that the person's telling the truth right this isn't scripted it's that just, this isn't manufactured yeah, it's hard to fake it's clearly it. not scripted right it's, <laughs> it's pretty i mean i guess it's uh, maybe they're clearly vulnerable maybe it's today a young enough format to where people haven't figured out how to do the fake vulnerable version of it they are maybe in the midst of figuring it out as we speak we are not figuring that no, out. no clearly not two, two people <laughs> and the stakes are so with high online outside. to be vulnerable right because it is a crane maybe yeah. that's what's happening was, uh, but if you are vulnerable online it is there forever and you are open to mm-hmm. everything that's coming your way and it's just not I mean you can't be wrong anymore right and do, right. so I do think that is impacting people's overall ability to be vulnerable in their life and it will always be easier yeah. but it, it if you find and understand how to be authentic and, and authenticity is vulnerability, you are saying this is who I am no matter what, I think it translates. It can translate no matter what your venue, at least ideally. Mm-hmm. There's certainly venues that are going to be easier or harder. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how are you going to refill your cup, I guess, is my question. Oh, I just think giving myself a break. Mm-hmm. You mean mentally or actually? Mentally. Yeah. Absolutely mentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a really good thing to, to write to. I think people, mm-hmm. one of the hardest things I find in my work with clients, interestingly, is the sense of what am I doing well? What is good about me? What do I like about me? How mm-hmm. is this a win? How am I better off? What's even a reward or reinforcing to me? What do I enjoy? It's amazing how ill-equipped we are to even feel comfortable thinking about those things. Mm. And so I think for me to take a little of my own advice mm-hmm. and and focus on that. Which is actually, I think a a pretty good segue into uh, our question because this has a little bit to do with uh, like, when do you push yourself? When are you kind to yourself? Um, I will read the question because last time I made you read it and it caused a whole existential crisis about your eyesight. It did, (laughs) but look what I have today. I have my glasses. Oh shit. I'm sorry. I I stole your All right. Go ahead. Okay. Artists from this is from Dahlia, who's one of our of the members that we have at the process online. Um, she wonders: artists have to be sensitive to be good. Your job is to process aspects of our world with greater clarity and gravity than others. Translate that into a piece of work, and then release it to the greater audience so that they can better understand the relationship to the world through your vision. I should note, by the way, that 
this beginning part is actually not Dahlia's uh, question. This is something that she read or heard, and then her question follows. Continuing, that's it. That's the gig. Whether you're a writer, musician, painter, dancer, your job is to observe and feel it and feel things as intensely and as specifically as possible, and then to create something that allows others to contemplate and grow in the moments they are connected to your interpretation of the world. Feeling and observing with that level of intensity is a lot, especially if you're one of the people who doesn't have a system to regulate your relationship with it. For many, there isn't an on-off switch. So that concludes what Dahlia read or heard, and here's her question. My question is how to ask for help when depressed in a world that values so much productivity and success over vulnerability and lack of confidence. I know human flaws created the most compelling pieces of art, but in a dichotomous society in which there are more and more only winners on one side and losers on the other side, what's the right move to deconstruct these old fashioned views of the world? What a great question. I know that Dahlia is French and this feels very existentially French in a sort of philosophical way. I love it. I dig it. What are your thoughts? One thing that, comes to mind first is that the sense that there are more winners and losers is probably also a function of this online world in which we are living in because we are constantly exposed to the sense that we're not doing enough because our feeds for lack of a better term. And that may just include like the emails you get imply that everyone else is out there accomplishing so much Correct. And it, our wins are what makes yeah. So I think that's you our know, online if, presence. I don't know whatever the number of people I follow on Instagram, but chances are pretty good that a couple of them are going to be on vacation at any given moment. It starts to feel like everybody I know is always on vacation. And that's categorically incorrect, <laughs> but it feels that way because Dang. of the information Although we that just tried to book for spring break and that actually may be the case the whole world is, on, is vacation. on vacation okay go ahead so i think like that that's part of it is that uh, it feels i think the social media tends to exaggerate the highs and lows right uh especially the highs because people don't often get on there to say but didn't create anything today no <laughs> today was another done. day when i didn't finish a painting <laughs> Um, and I think so from a framing perspective, I also want to mention, as I said, at the outset of this, I think it's valuable to not just think in terms of creativity as painting or writing or sculpting or dancing, but also in terms of the creativity that is required to send a great email or to create a great graphic or to set up a great date. Like yes. that, all of those things count. And, you know, thinking about a, the idea of setting up a great date makes me think of you see all these people with these outlandish wedding proposals or prom date asks. And you're like, well, I don't who can, I don't even know how to top that. Like, why would I even try? And so then it can be overwhelming in that regard. Sure. Right. So do you have thoughts on how someone can first mitigate that sense that the world is telling them that they're not enough? Ab- yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What would you, yes, what would and I you think say? The, the crux, this is such a great question. And the crux of it is this last part. What is the right move, move to deconstruct these old fashioned views of the world? And first and foremost is understanding what is the world telling me? What I think the world is telling me and what am I telling myself? Because the, the most important question is that latter. And so how can I extract the two? Mm-hmm. Or if I feel 
like what the world is saying. I can only be successful. I can only be productive and what that productivity means. It's all about what I'm making it mean. Don't worry about the world is is telling us, but often what the world is telling us is what we're making it mean. Mm -hmm. So it's really identifying that specifically. Not what the world is defining as productivity, but what am I defining as productivity? Mm -hmm. The world says this. Mm -hmm. Is that my definition of productivity? Mm -hmm. Is that my definition of success? Is that my definition of creativity? Just like you said. And also, I think... It's actually not an old fashioned, it's a new fashioned view. And that's the issue. So there are lots of places I've been in the world where people don't give a shit about productivity. Correct. It's actually a very American issue around workaholism and, and output, that yes. kind of thing. So I think it's also valuable to recognize that we're actually breaking new ground in the wrong direction. And that in a lot of cases, people had a better handle on this a long time ago. Of course. I was amazed when we went to Sweden to meet some of our relatives. Um, that's one of our, uh, closest connections to our ancestors is to Sweden. They're some of the most recent, uh, immigrants. And so we still have contact with some of our, uh, relatives there. I was amazed in this little town of Hugh H J O at how okay people were with being a roofer yeah, or being a parks supervisor. These were very uh, put together and um, functional humans that if they had that job here, we would probably look down on them like, oh man, they're working class. But there, they were held in esteem in their little community and they also were very uh, at ease with their existence. And I think that's more the norm than not. Yes. Here in the U.S., we are doing some things wrong. <laughs> We're doing a lot wrong. In that regard. I come back to one of my favorite quotes I heard of the sense of embracing mediocrity. And mm. I think it's interesting how that hits so many people viscerally as, oh, that means I'm not, I'm going to be complacent. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to reach my potential, whatever the, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. I hate that by the way. <laughs> um, but you're exactly right. What, and our cues always are not what the world is telling me, but how this is making me feel. I can't know what is real out there or what is success for somebody else or even somebody I think who's successful. What does that mean to me? Mm -hmm. Is it happiness? Is it authenticity? Is it relationships? I can't know that those people have that. What is it for me? Yes. Great point. What is it for me? Because especially with creativity, we were just talking about how the only vulnerable writing you do is when you aren't of the expectation that somebody else is going to read it. Right. That's where greatness comes in art is when it happens to be that you've run, didn't, done something vulnerable and then you do expose it to the world and people are like, oh, wow, I really relate to that. So I think some of this ties back to if you are being creative for the exterior rewards, it will never work. Right. Just so one of the problems that people have is they get wisdom from people who have been successful, who've had movies made or uh, buildings designed, whatever it is, they forget that those people got their start doing it for themselves. Yes. End of story. Full stop. Yes. Like as soon as you start thinking, what will my audience like? You're screwed. Yes. And, and effortlessly and so intrinsically 
rewarding when mm-hmm. that's the case and not based on the feedback we're getting from others. But the problem is, is we get confused and distracted by the really good blips of dopamine release when we hear a compliment or we get feedback or somebody validates, mm-hmm. but that's not what is sustaining and that's not what's really motivating long term. Mm-hmm. It is that, again, getting back to the flow state of when we're so immersed and absorbed and doing something because we're inherently enjoying it and it's for us, mm-hmm. that's our state of authenticity, yeah. whether it's emotionally, creatively, whether we're relating with other people and literally in the brain. Again, when we go into that edit mode, when we go into that translating what others are thinking of us, that self-judgment, the judgment from others the actual structures in the brain that are active are not the structures that help us be genuinely creative, genuinely resourceful, problem solving. It's edit mode. This actually kind of ties interestingly back to what we were talking about when it comes to sticking up for yourself, because I think creativity is inherently scary, right? You're putting yourself out there like, oh, here's this album called Nevermind. And we don't know if it's going to be good now we may pretend we don't care but we do mm-hmm. i think there's this there's so much value in in figuring out what is your safe place where you can perform or be creative or whatever it is that's that's going to allow you to bolster that um i don't know that again i keep using the word reservoir but it is a little bit of like yeah. building that reservoir of like well this one person didn't like what I did, but I've been doing it for so long. And I know that deep down within me, it's pretty good that I don't care. Like when I, so yeah, when my first blog was happening with the Phoenix suns, right? This, the short backstory for those who are not aware is that I had uh, played for four years, signed with the Phoenix suns after a couple of brief stints in the NBA, the blog that I wrote caught some people's attention, led to a book deal, right? What people didn't know is that I'd been writing for four years already each week about what it was like to be a professional basketball player. And so I knew going into writing that blog that I had some facility for doing it, right? Like I, I knew how to turn a phrase. I knew how to make people laugh. I knew how to relate my circumstances to kind of everyday living because I had screwed it up enough times, but I'd also done it in a controlled environment. I had my little Petri dish of my kind of small list serve. So it appeared to people wow, this guy just hit the ground running like he, wow, what a debut. But it wasn't a debut at all. Right. I'd been doing it for a really long time. And so that allowed me to also withstand some of the criticism that came inherently because I was like, hmm, I don't know, man. People think I'm pretty funny most yeah. of the time. So <laughs> I don't really give a shit what you think. I think I'm pretty funny. But <laughs> yeah. that's, that's our ideal spot we want to be. <laughs> right. So I, so I, I think it's um, so much of this, as, as you wisely said at the beginning, is, is removing the external from it building a kind of confidence, quiet confidence that, that then leads to the willingness to put it in front of people. And, and the effortless motivation, because when you think back then, when you are writing what you love for Mm -hmm. yourself without that concern of, if, is this going to sell? Who's going to, you know, break this down? Who's going to critique it? Who's going to love it? It's so much more effortless. It's like all the great musicians early on and who are just making amazing music. And then as, you know, maybe has something to do with having life's easy and success. But I think it also has to do with this inevitable internalization of what, how this is going to translate or what it's going to mean for others. Yeah, Totally. I, so I used to, when I was young, I loved U2, um, which is, 
kind of lame now, but when I was discovering you two, the band, it was, uh, I was in seventh grade and they had just put out the album Octung baby, which is a pretty weird album. So that had followed up. I think the Joshua tree was the album before that. Joshua tree is also so young. pretty weird. Um, and so I caught you two in a weird phase where their next album after that was Zuropa, which was also very strange. Like people don't remember that album, but it's like pretty electronic and strange and all this. Then they put out an album called pop, which led to the pop Mart tour, which was them like kind of taking the piss out of being famous. And all of it was weird, but it didn't sell a bunch. Then they reverted because they were like, no, this isn't working very well for our sales. They reverted to kind of just the boring, like straightforward stuff. And I'm feeling so betrayed. Not that I was actually betrayed, but you could tell they were they were pushing themselves. They were doing it for them. And then somebody must have gotten in their heads and was like, we need you to sell 10 million copies. So like come back to something a little more palatable. And it was so sad because that's not how you make great art. Right. And so sad again, from a personal level for all of us, when we get into that, what was it? The pop phase Yeah, <laughs> is that we no longer experience the same amount of joy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a slog. It's, it's more difficult. It's not as effortless and it's not as authentic. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess that, I I just also want to keep coming back to if you're listening and you're thinking, well, I don't do creative things. I bet you do. And I bet that when you're at your best and you are running your business or you are doing freelance copywriting that you have found a way to make it joyous in its way. And that that's you at your best. Right. Effortlessly motivated. Mm-hmm. And I have a better U2 story. Oh, nice. Tell me. I was at Red Rocks for the epic filming of Sunday Bloody Sunday. Oh, wow. Yes. I was 12 years old. Okay. We were being babysat, <laughs> a friend of mine, by someone who was dating one of the concert promoter's sons. I think that was it. Mm-hmm. And we got dragged up there, didn't want to go, were miserable. It was raining, didn't know who this band was. <laughs> and we are now You're MTV lore. Immortalized. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that that video was done at Red Rocks. Yes. I'm going to have to go. I'm going to watch that this afternoon for sure. I'm not going to tell this whole story because we've blistered people's ears (laughs) at this point. Uh, But I went to U2 on that Pop Mart tour after my freshman year of college at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. And when I got there, I was meeting my friend. I didn't have a cell phone yet. When I got there, they had switched around all the seats and there was no way for me to find my friend because I showed up on my own and they're like, here's your new ticket. We rearranged everything, all the seats on the field and here's where you go. And I'm like, but are they, my friend's going to be able to sit there. They're like, probably not. So I ended up watching you two at a, in a stadium just by myself, (laughs) which now I would just do. But back then I was like, this is terrifying. This is weird. Weird. Yeah. But it ended up being amazing. Of course. Right. Like it's always great when you end up having a weird experience like that. I was, they actually upgraded us. I was like 13 rows back. Yes, but you were still an arrowhead yeah. and not Red Rocks. No, I mean, I'm not. I win. You win. I'm cooler. Sure. And you're, you're immortalized on video. All right, let's tell me. Uh, you got some of them over there, too, but we have some uh, some people within our community who've upgraded. Thank you, Dahlia, for that question. Um, some new apprentices. That means that people have done at least one session. Jay Scotty Briggs and Alice W. Oh, no, wait. That's mine from last week. You've got them. You've so got this them is there. it? Yeah, you've got them. 
Clumsy girl travels. Yeah, she's a he I or she that. is an apprentice. Okay, then, a builder, saucy T, nuns of nature, Mason, Shanny Bell, Sarah Eckstein, and Zia, artisan, Gabriel Neustadt, Melagrosa M, and a process wizard, H.P. Wood. So that means that H.P. Wood has done 500 sessions Gee, on our... Speaking of wood... <laughs> okay, that will be edited. <laughs> Please don't edit that. Rich, uh, <laughs> thanks guys for listening, and uh, thanks for letting us uh, do our own little miniature therapy <laughs> in public. It's much appreciated. If you have a question for us and you're not a member of the process online, send us an email at podcast at createyourprocess.com. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, friends, Paul here. I really appreciate you listening. The executive producer of the Process Podcast is Rich Berner. Music came to us courtesy of Kevin McLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. I'll talk to you again soon.